The Bob Murphy Show, episode 152. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show i want to start this episode by pointing out to people that things are going to get really dark in this country in particular. And I think a lot of us have this sense of foreboding. We know it's going to be bad, but I think sometimes we just don't focus on the details and just kind of sweep it under. Ah, well, it's going to be bad. Well, what can you do about it? Let's just keep our head down and keep doing what we're doing. But I think it is important to emphasize just how bad things could get in the not too distant future. So let me just emphasize a few things that I'm sure you've been aware of, but perhaps putting them all together will sort of give a picture of the totality of what we're up against here. So the obvious thing is the upcoming election. I realize that there's a cliche, certainly, that's made fun of among libertarian types, that people every election say, this is the most important election of our lifetime. You got to get out there and vote. And naturally, they think if you vote for a third-party candidate, you're casting your vote away, and that because this is the most important election of our lifetime, it's got to be one or the other of the two main parties, even though they're flip side of the same coin. But in defense of that observation, it's ironic, I realized this the other day, most libertarians also agree that the state's power has been growing over time and that the only reason elections matter is that these people have so much power over you, right? Like a lot of libertarian types will say things like, you know, I long for a, a world where we don't even know who's running for president. And if the president just stuck to the Constitution, then you wouldn't care, would you? That that sort of thing. And again, coupled with the fact that the president's power undeniably in the long run increases over time, it actually makes sense using the libertarian's own talking points that every successive election would seem more important than the last one, that more was at stake. So regardless of whether it's been correct to say it in the past, I do think this upcoming election really is important and not even so much in terms of, oh, I want my candidate to win. That's not even what I'm talking about. I'm just saying that this is going to really be pretty important in determining the short-term trajectory of what happens in the United States. And so I, like I myself, don't really know how to guess what's going to, what the world's going to look like for Americans in the next, over the next 12 months, let's say without me knowing how's the election going to go. So let me just put it to you this way. What's going to be really bad, I think, is if um, there's, is if, if it's close. Because with all the mail-in ballots, and I've heard reports that the, like the, the news, you know, like the major networks are gearing up to like have election coverage for that whole week because they're all assuming it's not going to be de- decided who the actual president is that night or even the next day that they're going to be counting mail-in ballots and, you know, there's going to be a lot of delays and people afraid to announce things. So, you know, this isn't, in case that's not on your radar, I want to make that clear that 
my understanding is the various institutional players in this are gearing up for the fact that we won't know who the president is, at least for several days after the official election. And so my point is, if it's close, that's going to get really ugly because then you're going to have, you know, both sides digging in and claiming that they won and the other side's cheating. And so you could truly have a situation where a good 30% of the country thinks Joe Biden is the president, another 30% thinks Trump is the president, and the, you know, the rest are caught in the middle. And, and, and let me just stress, that is a different thing. I've, I've been talking about this since late last year, this idea that there could be two presidents the way that historically, you know, there's sometimes be two popes that people have pledged their allegiance to. And, uh, and people dismissed me. So, oh, yeah, Bob, well, that's what they did the last election too. No, no, no. Th this is qualitatively different. The last election, everybody knew Trump won, even his liberal critics. It's just they said he cheated or they said, well, it's a stupid system. He won according to the Electoral College, but not according to the popular vote, you know, or Putin helped him steal it or you know, Facebook ads, whatever, fake news, Comey's, you know, treason, whatever. But they basically conceded that yes, Trump actually did get more votes in the electoral college. And so by that criterion, I guess, yeah, you won, but come on, he cheated and he's a bad guy. It's a bad system. I'm saying this time around, if the vote total is close, by which I mean, you know, if, if the popular vote in various states is close enough that it's, you know, it's not an open and shut case who won that state. And then when you do that and all the electoral votes and how they add up, I'm saying if it's, if it's close, if it's not a landslide one way or the other, then you're going to have people who are truly believing that their guy legitimately won the election and the other person is a usurper, all right? And that's, that's going to be something that's, that's new in U.S. politics because, again, even the people who said Trump's not my president, would, I mean, they, they were claiming he cheated, not that he didn't actually garner the votes, all right? So in that kind of a situation, it's really not clear what would happen, I mean, I, I think ultimately the military would have to decide who the president was. And it would not surprise me at all if right now, if both the Republican and Democratic leadership is having meetings behind closed doors with, you know, top brass at the Pentagon and whatnot, saying to them, okay, what are you going to do under these various scenarios? Because I, th I think ultimately that's what um, the way it would play out. I mean, the Supreme Court can say whatever, and, and maybe... That's what they're saying. Maybe they would, the military generals are saying things like, okay, well, yeah, we'd certainly maintain order. You know, if, if riots start breaking out, maybe we declare martial law and then we would wait and convene and have, you know, Congress meet or the Supreme Court wait. Who knows? It might be something like that to sort of lend legitimacy to it. And maybe some of those generals actually believe in what they're doing and, you know, that they're serving the constitutional framework. But I, I'm stressing that we are at this point, that this, this isn't crazy talk that I'm engaging in just to make this episode interesting. Like this is legitimately something that you need to think through if this hasn't been on your radar. Now, even if it doesn't come to that, like let's say one side really is the hands down winner. Either way, it's still, it doesn't bode well for peace. All right. So clearly if Trump wins, I mean, it's, there's lots of people openly saying there's going to be riots, right? So that's not a surprise. I'm not saying anything unusual there. But even if Biden wins, so here's the thing too. I think a lot of people are sort of 
resignedly saying, well, looks like Biden's leading in the polls and yeah, if he wins, I don't like the guy, I don't like his policies, say what you will, but at least, you know, we won't have, at least the riots will stop and, and these leftists will back down. It might be a temporary respite, but then here's where the conflict's going to come in. If this is as aggressive as the, the leftists are being right now when they're nominally not in power, right, when all they have is, you know, tacit public opinion in the sense that most Americans will say, oh, yeah, I support BLM. And then, you know, depending on how much you push them, they might get more specific and say, or at least their main aims or whatever. But I think most people support BLM and that's why they're able to operate with such impunity. But imagine in a Biden administration, how much more powerful and emboldened they'll feel, right? If like then if they're acting like this, even when the guy they claim is their mortal enemy is running, you know, has the most powerful position. Imagine if it's a Biden administration and all the stuff that BLM is going to be able to get away with and pushing through, right? Or, it's broader than that at this point. And in case this stuff, again, I'm just mentioning this in the case it's not on your radar, this stuff has really just infected everything. Okay, it is all over at this point. I mean, I recently, here on the Bob Murphy Show, went through with you folks a uh, an article that the NEA, National Education Association, tweeted out to its followers talking about how to reform school and it was openly talking about, oh yeah, the existing schools are all built on white, you know, to maintain white supremacy. That's what they're designed to do. And so we need to look at the Black Panthers model to figure out how to change schooling. All right, that again, linked to by the NEA. We saw something else, my, my wife and I were watching, uh, I think it was that uh, Carolyn, her show again on YouTube and she was going through something and it was, it was from Parents Magazine, okay? All right, so this is, again, this isn't like it's Salon or HuffPo. This is Parents Magazine featured an article about how we need to teach the history of racism to young kids in science class. You know, not in history class, in science class, so they could realize that, especially in the context of healthcare and what they call our current system of medical apartheid. Now, what, what did they mean? Oh, well, there was disparate health outcomes based on race. And that's what they were saying was the evidence that in this country we have medical apartheid. So again, it's like, well, no, actually what apartheid is, is when it's institutional, when it's actually written down, this is the, the favored race and this is the inferior one. And here's the legal privileges and constraints on the second class citizens. That's what actual apartheid is. Not that one group has a higher rate of diabetes than another. So this, like I say, that this wasn't in some far left public, this was in Parents Magazine talking about how we're going to teach kids like this. So the mask is off, as it were, no pun intended with reference to the COVID stuff. Like these people who want to take not just your guns, but your children are openly showing their hand. And they're doing that with Trump being the president. And so when Biden comes in, like these people, you know, seeing their bloodlust on Twitter, for example, wanting to punch kids in the face, high school kids, because, oh, they were staring down a Native American. Uh, people who openly pined for Donald Trump to die a painful death from coronavirus, right? These people, do you think because Biden wins 
a guy that they all know is a racist. Like you hear these people talk on podcasts and they, they don't like Biden. He's not their guy. They know he talked about super predators and supported the crime bill in the 90s and things like this, right? They're not going to be placated. That'd be like if you were an anarcho-capitalist and Mitt Romney won or something, you know, that, that wouldn't, you wouldn't say, oh, okay, our guy's in there now. Now we're going to back down. No, they're just going to be more emboldened. Think of it this way too, and just in terms of the power that's coursing through the channels of this group of leftist progressives, I mean, they were the ones that shattered the lockdown protocol, right? Back when the pandemic first swept across the world and people got locked down in the US, BLM was the ones who finally broke that, right? By going out and protesting. And then look what they did. All the public health experts who were so sternly warning of all these dire consequences turned on a dime. So I think most of us, what we took away from that was, wow, these health experts are a bunch of lying cowards. And that's true. But imagine if you were the BLM people. They didn't know ahead of time that that was going to happen. They had to test it and see. And then they did see. They realized, ah, yes, we are the most dominant force in U.S. politics right now. We are even more important than the pandemic. That the authorities and public opinion, you know, people would rather be called grandma killers than be called racists. And so the groups that in U.S. society and culture have the quote, authority to designate who's the racist and who's not, or who's an ally and who's not, who's a white supremacist and who's not, they're still running the show. Okay, so you can see when you get, when you give people power like that, they're not going to then say, okay, that's all we wanted and then rest on their laurels. No, if Biden wins, they are going to push through all sorts of demands legislatively, right? So they reserve that, you know, it's the two-pronged thing that if we don't get our way at the ballot box, we're going to riot, but if we do get our way at the ballot box, we're then going to push through through our representatives who have openly pledged to be our allies all sorts of measures that are going to horrify, quote, you know, regular bourgeois Americans. All right. So my point is, even if there is a temporary respite and civil unrest, if Biden wins, it, it really is only going to be temporary because then the next wave of what comes is going to be unacceptable. And that's something that I think these left-wing activists don't fully appreciate. Thus far, you know, they can violate lockdown orders. Nobody cares. All the health experts will say, oh, well, racism is even more important uh, health problem than the coronavirus. And so it's okay. So they know what's going on. For example, let me just, if you haven't seen it yet, go look, I'll link in the show notes page. This is bobmurphyshow.com slash 152. The Jimmy Kimmel thing recently where he, you know, he's the host of the awards show. And there's this bit where this black entertainer, I guess, he, I don't know if he actually the guy is, I've, I haven't had a TV in a long time, comes out and he's going to say, this is the part, Jimmy, where all the white people applaud. And Jimmy's, oh, oh and, he's, and he's acting like a trained seal. I don't mean a Navy seal. I mean a seal in a circus. And, and, the, and it's supposed to be funny, right? And it's not funny. They don't have a live audience there, so it's extra awkward. But the black entertainer is engaging in all sorts of, you know, cliches too about that, you know, like being offended at stuff. And, oh, we were supposed to get the most awards this year for black people, 
But then coronavirus took that from us too. Are you kidding me? Right. So I'm, I, th- I think the premise behind the skit was supposed to be just exaggerating things on both sides. Like, oh yes, this is how you white people are. But the quote joke was, at least regarding the white people, is you are a bunch of cowards who are walking around on eggshells doing whatever black people tell you to do for fear of being called a racist. But beyond that, also the message was just because you're saying you support Black Lives Matter, you're only doing it because we're telling you to say that. You don't actually believe it, do you? You're just following the orders that we bark at you. And so, you know, that's, I, I think that that skit really was getting at something. And the reason people didn't find it funny is because it was an uncomfortable truth for some people. That yeah, that that is what's going on here, and it's disgusting. It's it's not haha. That's funny. All right. So the fact that certain groups who have been waiting in the wings now have their moment, they're not going to back down, right? The forces that have been at least now that people have had a taste of going out and setting cities on fire, they're not just going to walk away. Say okay, we're done. Things are going to keep intensifying. Again, the, the, the form might change. Biden coming in, maybe people will say, okay, let's, let's pull back now and push through it another way. But they're going to push through harder in other channels. And, and so circle back to what I was, the point I was making. I think they're miscalculating because I think people on the left think they can just keep pushing and these bourgeois Americans are just going to roll over and keep taking it indefinitely and i think that no he goes you know oh, we'll sit in a restaurant people come in raise their fist and okay i'll raise my fist or i'll just get up and leave i'm not gonna stand up people just block traffic okay most of us will just okay do, 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 do. but once more americans realize they're coming after my kids that's when people are going to draw a line in the sand and say no 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 you're not this is where it stops and i think the left probably because they hate kids don't fully get that all right so that's something where you know, they, they know that the right-wingers who have guns are big on guns and that they'll fight for their gun rights. And they know that, okay, we pass. And that might be one of the channels, that if there's aggressive gun control legislation and the BATF starts going around kicking in doors, that's something that could spark you know, actual widespread outbreaks of violence. All right, so the other thing too, beyond all this, is the economic situation. All right, so if there were a prosperous economy, maybe these things could be weathered and eventually people would just go back to normal. But that's not the world we're living in right now. All right. As of September, the unemployment rate was 7.9%, down from the 14.7% back in April, which I think was an underestimate. All right, we can quibble about how they count things, but I think there was a bigger share of the labor force that was out than that number would suggest, but be that as it may, even right now, the official numbers are showing that in September, the unemployment rate was 7.9%. And I think a lot of people feel like, okay, things are kind of back to normal now. Just for some perspective, in the recession of the early 2000s, the unemployment rate peaked at 6.3%, right? That was the highest it got in that cycle. And then in the recession that happened in the early 1990s, the unemployment rate peaked at 7.8%. Okay, so right now, the unemployment rate is still higher 
than it had been at any point during two of the last three recessions, right? So you, know, you got to go past the Great Recession because there the unemployment rate got up to 10%. But for the two recessions before that, the unemployment rate never got as high in the entire business cycle as it still is right now, even though ostensibly things are kind of back to normal now, right? So that just feels that way because things had been so bad when the lockdown orders first happened that now as things are opening up, it feels a little better. Folks, let's take a break from the discussion for me to once again remind you that if you like what you hear, you like the guests that I bring on and the perspective I offer in the solo episodes, by all means, consider making a contribution. The more such contributions I get, the more episodes I can do per month just as a justification for using my scarce labor hours on this outlet that I love, but yet does not fully pay the bills. And so I can only do it part-time thus far. For details on how you can do that and all the special bonuses, depending on your level of contribution, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Let me just mention, if you've made a qualifying contribution and you're supposed to get let into the Facebook secret group, shh, it's a secret. And it's been more than two weeks since you've made the contribution and I haven't gotten back to you. That means I somehow missed the note in my inbox. And so don't be shy. Please get in touch and just let me know. Uh, make sure that I get everybody in there who's supposed to be in there. Last thing I'll mention is whether you contribute or not, another way you can certainly help is subscribe to me on YouTube. And when you come across an episode that you realize some of your friends might be interested in or, you know, a coworker, and I'm going to be trying to make more episodes that are catering to someone who's not a true believer, as it were, then sharing the episodes with people like that is another great way for me to get the podcast out in front of more people. Thanks everybody for your support and let's get back to the episode. Some other factoids for you. According to Mish, there's a sense in which the Federal Reserve currently owns a third of all mortgages in the United States. All right, and so he's just saying that, you know, looking at the Fed's assets, there's $2 trillion held in, in mortgages, things that, you know, issued by Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or, or Ginny Mae, or in mortgage-backed securities. And so when you add all that stuff up compared to the, you know, the amount for the country as a whole, assets that are tied to mortgages, the Federal Reserve arguably owns almost one-third of all such. Other news reports mention that in June, 30% of Americans missed their housing payments. You know, so whether that was rent that you owed to a landlord or a mortgage payment on a, on a property, a residential property, an estimated 30%, you know, they surveyed people, 30% of Americans in June so that they missed their, their payment that month. The CDC in September issued a moratorium on evictions from residential properties, at least through the end of the calendar year, at the end of 2020. All right, so the CDC for health reasons saying, because that would, it will, you know, exacerbate the spread of the coronavirus if people are getting kicked out of their homes. But the CDC in September said in the entire country, you know, if, if you're being evicted or foreclosed upon, you know, here's the paperwork you file to get a temporary stay. All right, so what is this going to do? And of course, that's, there's lots of state level moratoria on evictions as well that kicked in when the coronavirus, you know, when the pandemic hit and the lockdowns were implemented. 
people couldn't go to work. How am I supposed to pay my rent? And so part of the way the authorities cushioned the blow was to say, you can't evict people if they're behind on their rent. All right, so I'm not here talking about whether that's good or a bad idea. My point is though that not talking about the the individual renters who, who, you know, they're in a bad situation themselves, but I'm talking about the middle-class owners, right? Like somebody who owns a a spare property and is renting it out. They're all going to be wiped out by this, right? Because they haven't been able to collect rent from a lot of their tenants. And then they can't even kick them out to get people in who can pay rent because that's illegal. All right. And also there's a lot of people, even if they could pay rent, might be just holding back and waiting just to see how does this shake out. Retail sector is getting just absolutely annihilated. All right, I just jotted down some of the household names that have declared bankruptcy this year. And so here, these are the company, it's like the company that declared bankruptcy might be the parent company that owns this, but the major names, things like Neiman Marcus, JCPenney, Pure One Imports, Brooks Brothers, Ann Taylor, Men's Warehouse, Joseph A. Bank, right? All those companies or the parent companies that own them have filed for bankruptcy protection, all right? The Federal Reserve in three months following, you know, the the beginning of the pandemic crisis in the United States, the Federal Reserve in three months bought about $3 trillion in assets, all right? They did roughly triple what they did in the fall and winter of 2008 in response to the financial crisis. All right, so what to me seems to be happening here, and I'm not saying it's all a grand master plan. It could just be various powerful interest groups riding the wave. But clearly it seems to me what's going to happen is as the dust settles and we start to get our bearings again, even if all the lockdowns are phased out and people get go back to some sense of normalcy, that a lot of middle class property owners will have been wiped out and the Federal Reserve and its political allies, you know, the people tied to the Fed and have access to the cheap credit the Fed's cranking out will snatch up all of that property. And so more and more, the average U.S. citizen will become dependent on the government, not only for medical benefits and food assistance, but also the the Fed might literally own your house or own the mortgage on it. Now, with all this stuff as well, another strain that I've been working on, another train of thought in some of my work, especially the stuff I've been doing, the Laura Murphy report, is to show that, you know, geez, it seems like there's this coordinated assault on our liberties. It's coming from the medical community with the coronavirus stuff. Like, gee, why is it that the authorities are always quick to pounce on some, quote, solution that takes away more of our freedoms, more of our civil liberties? Why is that? Geez, it seems like the schools are just a breeding ground for collectivism. Huh. Wow, the environmentalist movement. It's not just, hey, let's talk about how property rights can expand the quantity of fish stocks. And did you know that in certain African countries, when they introduced property rights and allowed for uh, the white rhino to be privately owned, all of a sudden poaching stopped? And it, No, that's not the typical message you hear from the environmentalist movement. No, it's all collectivism. Capitalism is evil. 
You need to restrict your lifestyle. In fact, don't have any more kids. You're just hurting Mother Earth, right? These are the messages. Why is that? Even in the churches, they're even being conquered by leftist progressivism. Why is that? Well, because that's what the plan was, right? It's not a coincidence. That's what the plan was. Again, I lay this out more in, um, in the series that I'm doing for the Laura Murphy Report. But just to give you some quick examples, the Fabian Society, go look them up if you're not familiar with them or if you just heard about them but don't really know too much. So it's a group of socialists, British intellectuals, and their explicit goal was to introduce socialism into Great Britain gradually because they knew the British people weren't just going to vote for it right away. If there was just an up or down vote in 1890, hey, do you want socialism? They would have said no. And so their plan was to bring it in gradually, and that's where the name came from. After the, the General Fabius, in terms of defending Rome from the barbarians who were, you know, superior in terms of their, uh, you know, from Hannibal coming in, and he, he was just too powerful a foe. So the Fabian strategy was not to meet Hannibal's armies head on because then they get wiped out. Instead, it was to adopt, you know, a guerrilla tactic, so war of attrition, attack. Hannibal's supply lines just melt and then melt away, you know, things like this. And so that's what the Fabian society realized they needed to do. We're not going to take on capitalism head on. We'll get defeated in open battle. Instead, we'll just try, you know, these subversive things, these little pot shots, hit and run techniques over the course of decades, and that will wear down our opponent. And so what did they do? The Fabian society, they set up the British Labor Party. Right, not the Socialist Party, the Labor Party. Oh, yeah, who's, who's against workers? They founded the London School of Economics, right? So they're realizing, oh, we got to take over academia and bring in socialist scholarship that way through formal channels, you know, teaching at the highest level. So cranking out PhDs in economics who are socialists. If you haven't heard the phrase, go Google and look up the long march through the institutions. So this is something that, at least according to Wikipedia, the term was actually coined by Rudi Deutschke in 1967. And he got it, or he got the idea. He apparently coined the term, but he credits Antonio Gramsci and, um, and then Herbert Marcusa, who was of the Frankfurt School, endorsed it. And so the idea is, so Marcuse wrote in 72, to extend the base of the student movement, Rudy Deutschka, and I'm probably mispronouncing his name, has proposed the strategy of the long march through the institutions, working against the established institutions while working within them, but not simply by boring from within, rather by doing the job, learning how to program and read computers, how to teach at all levels of education, how to use the mass media, how to organize production, how to recognize and eschew planned obsolescence, how to design, etc., and at the same time, preserving one's own consciousness and working with others. Okay, so the idea was conventional Marxism had not worked. Okay, and, and th this was also the, uh, the Frankfurt School that came over. People refer to them as cultural Marxists. This is also the idea. That, and again, we're not putting words in their mouth. This is you know, explicitly shown in their writing where they're saying, okay, Marx just thought, it was going to be this inevitable thing and 
the workers were going to realize they were being oppressed and rise up and have violent class struggle and take over, expropriate the expropriators. But you know what? Looking like at American society in the early 1900s, it doesn't look like that's happening anytime soon, that the middle class is too wealthy and pampered and they've been seduced by the, you know, the advertisers of capitalism. And so we need to engage in this long, drawn-out process of infiltration and subversion. We have to take over the newspapers. We got to take over the schools. We got to take over the churches. And then, you know, radio and TV when those became things. So that was the explicit aim of Marxists, or maybe they were former Marxists because they realized certain aspects of it weren't going to work, but they were communists. All right. So you can say, oh, well, just because they were writing it didn't mean it came true. Well, it certainly looks like it did, doesn't it? The head of the people running BLM, they're avowed Marxists. Right? It's not that we're speculating. They're telling us who they are. Another thing, just to show you, <laughs> I can't even believe that this is the case, but it is. The Fabian Society, when I was younger, I thought they were just more moderate. That, oh, they just were like socialists, but with a softer side to them their actual logo was a wolf in sheep's clothing all right so that's not something you adopt if you just really have nothing but peace and love at at your at the bottom of your heart and i won't go into it now in this episode here but if you want there are some various thinkers associated with the uh fabian society at least for some portion of their lives and they just have chilling quotes about their willingness to, you know, slaughter innocent people in the aim of establishing utopia. I'm having in mind like you like George Bernard Shaw in particular, but there were others as well that it's not just, oh yeah, they don't know how economics works. And so they were a little bit naive. Right, right? In other words, they're not John Lennon. Like, no, these these people have no problem throwing conventional morality out the window if it's what's needed to achieve their, uh, the downfall of capitalism. So things look pretty bleak, don't they? But there is hope. There will be a renaissance. And for some of these thoughts, I want to credit um, a lot of conversations I've been having with my wife on this stuff. So I, by no means are these my ideas alone, but I've now come to see the truth in them. There's going to be a renaissance. Out of the rubble, heroes will emerge. And just, you know, you wonder, how is that going to happen? Well, there are bright silver linings to these dark clouds. If you're a religious person, person who likes the Bible, I mean, this, this is how God works, right? What men intended for evil, God turns and uses for good. So the lockdowns, people out of work, they're sitting at home, they can't leave. Well, some of them are going to use that time and have been using it to go acquire a bunch of new skills, to just do deep dives in YouTube or Amazon Prime. There's all kinds of stuff. I mean, I learned a lot about the actual Renaissance that I never knew before. There's all sorts of stuff you can learn if that's how you decide you want to use your time. We went out to a craft store and a lot of the supplies were out. And I thought it was just, you know, oh, yeah, the pandemic and things are still. And my wife was saying, no, it's because there's a lot of people now who are taking up hobbies that before they wouldn't have had time for. 
this dabble with well now they're you know getting serious and that's why certain sections of the craft store were wiped out a lot of people who had certain medical conditions that they thought they needed to you know go in and get treatment for every week or what have you and they stopped doing that maybe some of them are going to wean themselves off of what was unnecessary treatment you know certain medications or procedures that they thought were essential and then they out of fear of the coronavirus or maybe because they explicitly were told don't come in, maybe they're going to realize, wait a minute, that wasn't so essential after all. And they're going to turn to other alternative remedies. When it comes to teaching you and your kids, a lot of parents are going to, number one, see the ridiculous stuff that is being taught to their kids. And there's stories of so-called educators lamenting that, oh no, now with this you know, massive amount of homeschooling, a lot of the parents are going to see this curriculum. So how are we supposed to uh, you know, do our work of, of showing these kids more than what they're getting in their patriarchal family structure? All right? I'm, I'm not putting words in their mouth. I, I've seen teachers complaining about that stuff on Twitter you know, because then, you know, that particular tweet will go viral as, as critics sees on that and say, what? Look at this. But again, there's teachers complaining that, oh, no, now parents are going to get nosy and snoop around and look at what we're teaching their kids and second-guessing us in the classroom, and rightly so. All right, so parents are going to get a sense and see exactly what their kids are being taught, and the ones that switch then to homeschooling are going to realize that even if your kid just spends two hours a day on, quote, school, but two hours spent effectively, they're going to end up in the long run with a much better education than what they were getting going to the typical school. Because the existing school format is so inefficient, among other things. Another benefit of all this was just the incredible lack of objectivity that the major media has shown not just recently, but throughout the Trump administration in general. But now with, you know, parents having to show their kids, you know, homeschooling and geez, I got to teach this kid geometry now and let me look up Khan Academy. And it is a lot of people are going to have to refine their skills in terms of going and discerning what's a good source of information and what's not so reliable, right? Like I, I had to do that with my son recently he had to do a, a project and I was like, oh yeah, we just go look on the internet. And, and I realized no one had ever shown him, this is how you kind of tell if a source on the internet's reliable or not. If you're doing a paper or something and you want to cite, you know, how do you know what's a good thing, place to cite and how, no, you wouldn't cite that. That's, I don't trust that website. And I realized just no one had shown him that before. So I'm saying that process is going to be intensified now, at least among certain households. So that even though there's a sense in which the forces of darkness have the upper hand right now and they've confined a bunch of people to house arrest, a lot of those people are using the opportunity to sharpen their intellectual swords. Right? They thought they were crushing us. They're forming diamonds. They thought they were burying us. They didn't know we were seeds. This is the sort of thing I'm talking about. And so it is true that there's going to be some dark times ahead. But then on the other end, a bunch of people are going to emerge from the rubble, a bunch of artists and poets, scientists, writers, other content creators, not just podcasts, but maybe new, new types of things that 
combining various media in ways that we haven't yet fully thought of. Innovators are going to come along and it's just going to be, it's going to be a renaissance, a rebirth. And so those of you who sense that as well, maybe you're going to be part of the vanguard. And we'll look forward to seeing what you have to produce for us. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.